Two Middle-Aged Men in Cleveland, episode one, two, three. Well, that's not hard to remember, is it, Ted? There we go. We need that as we uh, that know, older age. You know who uh, that reminds me of? Michael Jackson? Ronnie Duncan. <laughs> one, two, three, it's me. Three, two, one, I'm done. I interned with Ronnie Duncan, by the way, at Channel 19. I worked with Ronnie Duncan at Channel 19. I know. We both have very good stories. Um, <laughs> I'll say it as nice as I possibly can. It was an interesting experience with Ronnie, to say the least. Very talented man, but yeah, different. Very different. So Ron, Ronnie had a uh, <clears throat> style all his own. He did. He did. Love boxing. Really did. Love boxing. Slam Duncan. Slam Duncan. Ted, one twenty-three. Obviously, uh, we we haven't done this for a couple of weeks. We did it sparingly, but I, I had to go into the the numbers game. So, yeah. when you think of the number twenty-three, obviously, when it well, comes to Cleveland jerseys, I think there's certainly one person that comes to mind, and his name rhymes with Yebron James. So. But the question I have for you, it, it's a little bit of a test. Sure. Who are other 23s that might have played for the Cleveland Cavaliers? Oh, for the Cavaliers. You have oh. a shot. You uh, got a decent shot. There's three guys. I'll just say three guys that I think you have a chance to remember. Uh, I, For some reason, there's a guy. Uh, his first name was Henry. Am I close on that? Or is that not even right? No, I think no, you're thinking okay. of Henry James. Is Henry he James. Okay, what was he? Not. He was not he was not twenty three. Okay. No. Uh, World B free wasn't twenty three, was he? Was not. Okay. No. All right. Well, I'll just stop calling off random Cavaliers and let you yes. fill me in. John Morton. Remember Johnny Morton? Didn't he have a steakhouse downtown? Yeah, it's outstanding. I don't. Okay. The same name, not yeah. the same cat. Oh. Tyrone Corbin, remember him? Tyrone Corbin, sure I do. 23. And not to be confused with the football player, but Derek Anderson, who played for Kentucky. Do you remember him? He played a brief stint with uh, us, was like a small forward. Yeah, those are some very interesting ones. Yeah. Boy. How about for the tribe? Uh, I knew you'd ask this. Um, uh, there's two that wore the uniform for quite a long time. One guy wore it for nine years, played from 09 to 18. Another guy wore it from 81 to 88. And he liked to crouch down. That's my only. Uh, uh, crouch down. You talking about uh, Ron Hassey? No, Ron Hassey was nine. No. I don't know. Same position. Chris Bando. How about Chris that one? Chris Bando. That's him. Yes. This is Listen to this list of 23s for the Guardians Please. Indians. This is pretty good. Vic Wirtz played yeah. on the 54 team. Sure. How about Lou Pinella? <laughs> oh, How about so that? Blue. Oscar Gamble, Mr. Hare, Chris Bando, Louis Medina. I know he's always one of your favorites. Louis yes. Medina. He's, he, had a, he played great for one year hard hitting Mark Witten. Oh, I love Mark Witten. One of the greatest baseball names ever. Julio Franco. Julio. David, he means justice. <laughs> justice will be served. He did that from 97 to 2000. 
He's now, this guy's now back on the radio broadcast for the Guardians, Ellis Burks. Yeah, he's there every so often, sure. Michael Brantley, who we never yep. should have let go. Right. And Bo Naylor this year. And then a guy that he is not one of my 20... favorite players. Bo Naylor? Bo Naylor, yeah, him and uh, Josh. Yeah, I do like favorite players. They're, actually, end of the year, Bo Naylor was hitting the heck out of the ball. Yeah. Guy, I, I don't. I thought I'd done a good job of following sports, but maybe not. Dan Johnson in 20 and 21 for the Guardians? No idea who that is. I don't know who that is. <laughs> I, I must be missing something. Bo Naylor and uh, Josh Naylor. I've told, uh, I, I, I mentioned to my kids that they're my favorite players. They asked me why. I don't tell them. They don't need to know. No. They have no idea. It's, oh. it's fun. It's one of those things, once again, it's your joke. They don't need to know the insides of it. My wife just shakes her head. Of course. Yes. How about for your uh, Cleveland helmets? Cleveland helmets, 23. You got a shot at one. Is either a running back or a like a, a, a safety or a, a quarterback or something like that. Yes. Uh, what? Can you give me some playing years? Yeah, he played... Uh, let's see. He played in the two thousands for us. And then uh, he played for one of our rivals, the end of his career. Uh, not, uh, Joe, uh, Hayden. Yes. Joe Hayden. Well done. There you go. How about some Hank Poteet? <laughs> Martin Emerson, current player. Yeah. Andrew Sendejo. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then some Troy Hill. And we we liked him so much that we received him in a trade and then traded him, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the next year. Back to the same team. Well, so, there you go. So there's your uh, there's your jersey updates for number 23. There you go. That's yeah. a fun one. Well done. We missed a week, but every so often we things did. happen and we just we come back when we come back. That's correct. That's the Here bonus about our stuff. Did we uh, Did we miss anything? Well, the, the Cavaliers are going to be putting their practice facility in downtown Cleveland. I don't know if you knew about that or not. They're going to be part of that new project. I don't think it has anything to do with the stadium, but they want to move their practice facility, which is an independence to almost like yeah. the flats. How, how are they? Uh, how do the folks at Independence feel about that? Oh, I don't think you probably want to talk to them right now. I imagine <laughs> they're not as super excited. They like no. that. As we all know, Ted, it all comes back to uh, dollars and cents. And they'll De Niro. tax money. De Niro. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're not going to talk about the uh, the Browns, who uh, obviously, as we record this broadcast, played <laughs> yesterday. Oh, if you want to hear some good breakdown of a crappy team? You're going to have to listen to another podcast. We're not going to fill our airwaves with that. That's no, sure. no, not doing it. I wonder what uh, any of our uh, kids speak analysts would say about that. I'm interested to hear that. We do have the bye week coming up, so I thought maybe we could uh, connect with those two young men. Uh, probably in the in two weeks for our next okay. podcast and get their yeah. thoughts. It's like the beginning season thoughts from there you go. You have a great team to realizing that your team is still not very good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what a what a terrible week. Well let's pretty much let's move on and let's get to what we have on this week's show. Investment versus purchase. We have an amazing stat that I'm going to share in Klopp's clips regarding that. This week's overachiever has a chin up on the rest of us. 
an errant open mic comment. <laughs> Go figure. Oh, and boy. Part of the uh, misspeak of the week. John Grabowski is here with another Cleveland history lesson. Dusty Sloan will highlight another moment in Cleveland sports. And pro sports handicapper John Ryan is here. He has an amazing story of survival. And now, a woman's perspective. How do you keep your husband from reading your email? Rename the mail folder instruction manuals. This has been a woman's perspective. Ted, we are overachieving and we're having a great time doing it. And we found an overachiever who is 45-year-old man from Colorado. And get this, he set the world record for chin-ups in an hour with 1,010. Okay. I want to break this down. So this gentleman from Colorado did 1,010 chin-ups in one hour. Uh-huh. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. That means Frank Sangona... Sounds like he's involved with the mafia. Averaged almost 17 chin-ups per minute as he beat the previous record of 993 set in 2011. I, I don't think it says in there, but he did all of those with cement shoes on. Oh, I bet he did. <laughs> and actually, I don't think we hear about the previous champ. No. I think he's gone. He's <laughs> thou who shall not be named. He's he's buried somewhere. But uh, By the way. Is, that is impressive. I'm, what's, okay, let's let's have this conversation. Yeah. When is the last time you did a chin up? A chin, uh, uh, I don't I don't know that I've ever done a chin up. I did chin ups when I was younger because my body weight was much less. Yeah. I remember trying to do a chin up. Oh gosh, it was about ten years ago. Yeah. I, I thought my right arm was going to fall off. I don't know if I could do one chin up, and I have been working out a little bit more, trying to get myself back into shape and. Yeah, I'm not at chin, chin up level. No, uh, a thousand and ten is a thousand and eleven more than I could do. That would take me probably the next twenty five years. So, there we go. Well, hats off to Frank Sagona. Well done. Forty five years old, set the world record: one thousand ten chin ups in an hour. That's overachieving. Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. Today's guest has been handicapping professional sports for over 28 years. Our guest has created an algorithm program and database which changes sports betting into an investment strategy while promoting safe betting with the philosophy of betting with your head and not over it. Our guest has started the 2023 football season extremely well. In college football, he is 24 and 12, ATS Whoa. with 67% winners. Our guest is 90 and 45. That means he's won 67% of his bets in college football over the last three seasons. He's also done extremely well in the NFL so far this season at a record of 12 and 5. Our guest is a 22 year survivor of a rare blood cancer in which he was told he had six to 12 months to live. And we look forward to hearing about his battle. Our guest has over 12,000 followers on Twitter, over 2,000 subscribers on YouTube, and our guest can be heard on many different radio stations and media outlets across the U.S. 
talking sports betting and providing you with informative and usable betting information. Let's talk with John Ryan. John, thank you so much for taking time with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks very much for having me, and I greatly appreciate being on your show. It's, uh, it's truly an honor, and that introduction is very humbling. John, you and I became friends about three years ago, and I've wanted to have you on very much so in the past couple of years, and now with legalized sports betting, it makes sense here in Ohio. But before we start to talk about betting, let's talk about your uh, in your analytical betting system. Let's talk about, with the listeners, your story on fighting cancer 22 years ago. Thanks. And uh, this will dovetail right into why I do what I do today. And uh, in 2000, uh, December 12th, at exactly 5.45 p.m., I was told I was in a grave condition and had the six to 12 months to live. The blood cancer is called multiple myeloma. At the time, I was at the peak of uh, my career, um, you know, under the age of 40. And uh, it was hard to believe. I was uh, a former All-American athlete, and to be sick at, at that degree was just un, unimaginable. Uh, so there was a, a you know an initial denial uh, when the doctor did tell me that you know you're in a grave situation, and I probably can't repeat what I probably said to him, but it it, it was shocking. Um, I was actually cleaning up my stuff in my hospital room where I was stayed for ten days. And, um, you know, I'm walking around and he's going over my results and saying, you know, your protein levels are way up. And I'm thinking as an athlete, even a former athlete, that has to be good. So whatever was bothering me is now gone. And then he told me that I had to sit down. That's when he told me. So it was it was very shocking. Uh, the next fortunately for me, uh, the next two days and only two days were the most immense depression you can even imagine. Um you know, you, you start thinking really weird stuff. Like if I'm going out of here, I'm not going to burden my family. I'm, you know, whatever. But then I snapped out of it and I thought, well, if the good Lord's going to take me, he's not going to be happy with me if I show up at this time of my life on the, the pearly gates. And uh, I was just determined I was going to just fight with everything I had to try my best to overcome it, at least extend my life a little bit. So that that is kind of how it all started. Um, you know, did a, a whole bunch of research on where to go. Uh, fortunately, I had really great insurance. I could literally go, you know, out to Cedar Sinai if I wanted to in California. Uh, but being on the East Coast here, between Boston and essentially Washington D.C., it is a mecca of some of the best facilities in the world. Uh, so it was a blessing to have that all in close proximity to me, and um, elected to go to Johns Hopkins who are the, uh, the doctors that did the first bone marrow transplant in the history of the world. And I felt like I was uh, important to them and not just a number for a clinical trial. A lot of the places I went to, it's all about the clinical trial. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to feel like a, just a number. And uh, they, they made it feel like home. And it, that was very important to me that, you know, that there was that cheerleading, so to speak, you know, that we want to uh, support you as much as you can and get through this. And, uh, you know, they, they obviously did a great job. So the, the process was to go through some initial chemo to get the cancer down. So this is a cancer basically of the immune system, too much plasma in the bone marrow. And then once that starts happening, then it starts crowding out reds, whites, and everything else in your bone marrow. So when I was diagnosed with this, I was extraordinarily anemic and uh, didn't have much 
immune system to fight anything off. And that's what put me in the hospital in the first place with a really weird form of pneumonia. So, you know, we went through the, uh, you know, the gauntlet of uh, chemo. It was, uh, you know, it looked like orange Gatorade. In fact, that's what the kids called it. And uh, it was four days, 96 hours continuously. So, you know, you, they hooked you up and, you know, you, four days, you didn't take a shower, nothing. You just, that's, that's what was going on. So it, it, it worked very well the first month, but then the cancer is a form of the immune system. So it immuned itself to the chemo that I was getting. And then it, it acted like it was really angry that I bugged it. And it went really, really high. And uh, that was, you know, a, probably one of the lowest moments when you think you're starting to get an edge and beating it. And then all of a sudden you throw a pick six. You know, and that's, I guess that's kind of what it felt like. Um, but then uh, a drug uh, called thalidomide had been discovered somehow between a, a patient and his wife, who was a lawyer, that this might work for this particular cancer. Thalidomide was in the 1950s and it was used for morning sickness and it created a birth defect with people uh, in my age group where the you'll see them with the very short arms or no arm at all. And uh, I forget what that, that uh, birth defect is called, but it, you know, it, it basically took the drug off the market. Now it's getting back on the market. And when I started taking that at the maximum dose I could possibly take uh, by the FDA standards, and this, and this was part of a clinical trial. So I'm taking uh, 1,600 milligrams of, of thalidomide a day, twice a day. So it, it was a ton. Um, I played piano since I was uh, you know, basically seven years old. Uh, before we did the thalidomide, I was told that I'm going to lose uh, control of my fingers. I won't have any motor ability, probably. I won't be able to feel my feet. Wow. Uh, it, up to my, you know, and above the knee even, I wouldn't be able to feel. But there was no choice, you know, to be alive uh, for the family. That was the goal. And... Uh, I still play piano. It never touched my, my hands, and it only uh, gave me some severe neuropathy in my feet, which I still have today. But uh, one of the things that doctors don't understand to this day is, you know, why, did, why was it me? What was special about the situation uh, that, that got me cured of still an incurable form of, of blood cancer? So the neuropathy actually got better the last 10 years. Little by little, I noticed that, that you know, I can wiggle my toes and I can actually feel it. Um, let's see, where, where else should I go with this, Ken? You know the story pretty well. Well, I do, John. I mean, I, obviously you've talked about it, and, and Ted has a question here real quick, but I guess I'll do a quick follow-up. So right now, John, tell people where you're You're living, I mean, as close as you possibly can to a normal life, correct? Yeah, that's yeah, most people, they hear the story, they look at me and I, you know, humbly said, I'm not bragging about myself. I think I look, you know, pretty healthy. My, you know, my skin color is certainly not uh, like a sick person. Um, so I'm, I'm blessed beyond any possibility of combination of words could ever describe. Wow. You know, it's just been, a, it's been amazing. The, the transplant um, was very difficult. I won't minimize that. It, it was, it was brutal. Uh, they they give you enough. Um, let me just back up one second here to make it all fit together. Sure. Here. So in November, 11 months after I was diagnosed, uh, 
I got into a window, thanks to the thalidomide, to harvest my stem cells. So this was deemed impossible 10 months earlier. So went to Hopkins, they harvested them, and then they store them at a temperature uh, called Kelvin. So if you don't know Kelvin, it's, it's very, very cold. Yes. Um, so they're stored. Then the plan was to hope that the cancer stayed stable. Um, and because I was younger for this type of cancer, it was a, you know, a heck of a lot more aggressive. So there was a lot of peaks and valleys during that first 11 months. Uh, fortunately for me, it, it remained stable. And then, uh, you know, I literally was, um, I got the call, you know, literally, I, I, I imagine it was, my analogy is like a major league baseball player being called up. So it, I was given 48 hours uh, to get there and everything at Hopkins is done, you know, almost by the minute. Um, you know, it, it just was an incredible experience. So December 22nd is when I went there. So it wasn't a situation where, oh, wait, you know, it's the holidays. I'll just wait till after New Year's and then we'll do it then. How would that be? No, it wasn't like that at all. It was, you know, this is your time to give it a shot. And it doesn't, it didn't matter. But it did give it a lot more meaning being a Christian than I was in there over the holidays. Uh, I couldn't have any visitors. Um, and it was just, you know, me and uh, my fellow friends on, on the bone marrow cancer floor. Yeah. So um, the transplant itself was, um, was pretty, pretty nuts. Uh, Malphalon was one of the drugs, and they measured that out scientifically uh, to the, where I was taking uh, 36 pills of Malphalon every four hours. Oh, my and gosh. It, you know, you, they woke you up to take more. So that went on for four days. Um, then they gave you, um, I can't remember the name of the liquid uh, chemo, but the goal was to clean you out of just about everything. Um, you know, you have no whites. Uh, you have very few platelets under, you know, around 40, 35,000. And your red count is extraordinarily anemic uh, to the point that they do give you a transfusion uh, at some point during that eight days. Um, so you're kind of wiped out. So imagine like a forest fire and the results of the forest fire is nothing but charred remains. Yeah. And that's how I kind of looked at my bone marrow. And then on 1227, uh, they, you know, they give you a new birth certificate because it's a new immune system and, uh, the doctors all sing happy birthday. And I don't know if they still do it, but they did it for me and all the other patients. And then they start the process of putting the stem cells back in you. So this was called an autologous transplant. The one where you get a, a donor is, is commonly called a mutter. That's an allogeneic transplant. So I was just simply trying to buy time. Uh, they felt that the allogeneic one was, was way too aggressive and the, you know, the death rate was very high on that. You know, it was either going to work or I was going to be out of here. And, uh, you know, I at least wanted to see the kids go to kindergarten. Uh, all of them. That was my goal. It's plain and simple. Uh, so, you know, as I said, they froze the, uh, the stem cells at Kelvin and then the doctor comes in, I'm telling you, it was like a hot dog vendor at a baseball game, big silver container in front of him, you know, um, a strap around his neck and shoulders. And it looked like he was going to sell hot dogs. It really did. So then what they do is they take it from Kelvin and they bring it up to room temperature and it sounded like bacon on a griddle. And I'll never forget that sound because the crackling was just, it was loud. 
It, it, it sounded exactly like bacon. Wow. Then they, um, they, hook, they have everything hooked up into a port, which was here in my chest. And uh, they begin the process of putting you know, many bags of these stem cells back into you. You don't feel a thing. It's, it, it's brought up to your body temperature and they're put in. They're not even put in like a, a machine that you would see. It's just because of the machine actually will crush the stem cells. So they literally just use gravity and place the bags above you. And then it just goes right into the port. So it took about, I guess, an hour and a half uh, to get it all done. Um, and then it was wait. Then it was a waiting time because uh, it's not instant. So, you know, scientists today don't even know why stem cells uh, do what they do. Why they're assigned to be, you know, part of your eye, part of your hair, part of your uh, the skin in your face. Recognizing that, oh, there's an injury here, so we need to go, you know, disperse some stem cells there. They still don't know why that happens or how it happens. Uh, but lucky for me, the, it was about another week, uh, the results of my blood work started to slowly improve. And that's normal. Uh, it's not a radical change. It takes time to rebuild the forest, so to speak. And that was uh, a multi-year <clears throat> waiting game. Uh, it took many years to get to uh, a point where, you know, I could almost say, gee, I, you know, I almost felt normal today. Yeah. Like I remembered it. Um, I think a great example is when I ended up getting home, my first walk was 50 yards and I was exhausted. Again, for me, being you know, the athlete I once was, it was unacceptable. It just was in my mind, this is not acceptable. And then I, I literally rested for 15 minutes and then I walked back to the house and then I took a two hour nap. So from that point on, and uh, Ken, you know me pretty well, it was always and one. This, yep. You know, it's never good enough. So the next day, I probably walked 60 yards. You know, the next day, you know, 80, and just kept doing that. There was one day where I went maybe maybe a quarter mile uh, months later, and then I was too tired to make it back. So I had a call to get a ride to get back to the house. And, of course, the nurse practitioner, uh, you know, said, you got, got to take it easy. You got to take, uh, take it a little bit slower. But I don't know any other gear than, you know, fifth gear. Um, so that, that was, um, pretty crazy, um, time too. It, you know, it was basically up to about 2009, um, that Harvard med then said I was cured. Um, but they were reluctant to do that because it's so unusual. There's only three, uh, people that have had this that are cured right now and alive. Wow. So it, it's pretty nuts. Um, the, the other thing that happened along the way was the transplant happened. Everything's starting to go well. Um, and then the day before I was going to be dismissed to go home, I spiked a fever. Hmm. And spiking a fever for a cancer patient is like 99. Uh, that major concern. And I begged the nurse practitioner to just, oh, I'll be fine. I'll just be fine. Don't worry about it. I'm, you know, I know what I'm doing. So, no, you're not going anywhere. And uh, I you know, stayed kicking and screaming, but then I'm glad that I stayed because my liver stopped. It completely failed. And now I'm facing another life or death situation. And uh, I was, you know, through this whole process, you can tell I was hands on. I had to know everything about everything, almost to the degree of what the doctors knew, which the process does, how it works. 
in this particular case, the, the nurse practitioner was kind of like a second mom to me. I mean, she would read me the riot act when I was, you know, not a good patient and, and she would cheer me on when I was yeah. a good patient. Yeah. So we went over pros and cons and, uh, I have a little bit of a, a sense of humor too. And I remember she came in and, and she says, now what are you up to? And I said, well, I haven't had any excitement in 30 days. I thought I'd try this. And that I do remember saying that. <laughs> then we did the, the pros and cons on a sheet of paper. Uh, what was the best thing to do? So they were going to try to get a biopsy going down through my heart. If they nicked any of the arteries, I was going to bleed out and that was it. The other option was to do nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, ALK and AST are two of the enzyme measures for um, liver function. They run basically between like 12 and 25. I was at 2,400 and 2,600 on those enzymes. So I wasn't yellow. Um, you know, I still had color in my, my face and stuff. I didn't have any of that uh, type of symptom on, on the outside. But the inside, I was obviously very sick. So um, much to my surprise, I told the nurse that I opted to do nothing. And it was kind of a weird choice for me because I, I couldn't, I can't handle doing nothing. Uh, but it felt like that was the right thing to do. And then the miracle of all miracles happened. And, uh, you know, they were doing blood work on me just about every hour uh, to see where these enzyme levels were going. So I made the decision, and then I, I just felt a, a sense of peace that I can't even begin to tell you that I was accepting what the results were going to be. And if Monday or Tuesday came and that was, you know, they're going to tell me that I'm out of here, then okay, that's, I accept it. But the first test that the, um, I would say, junior resident did, uh, of course, extraordinary smart uh, doctor, I'm not minimizing that at all, but uh, her job was to take the blood and keep testing to see where I was at. And I still had time to change my mind, uh, but not many hours to change my mind. But she came back and she said, oh, the, it, the machine didn't test it, right? I gotta, I gotta take the blood again. Uh, so she took the blood again, and lo and behold, it wasn't a mistake, and the levels had already dropped to 1,800 from 2,400 and 2,800. So over the period of the next basically 36 hours, my liver came back to life. Wow. And that and that truly is the most amazing thing I think I've ever I've ever been through. Um, so then I you know eventually was allowed to go home and uh, the recovery was was long. Now, you know, it, I can tell you firsthand that um, cancer really really shaped my life and and gave me a lot of blessings. I know that sounds crazy to say because cancer is is horrific for anybody, but it. Uh, it opened up doors for me that would have never happened. Um, so, like, for example, I, when I realized that I was actually going to live for a couple years at least um, and recovering well, I just had this tremendous need to give back. And I uh, got involved with, um, as you know, Ken, I don't do anything small either. It's, you know, no. <laughs> so I, I found the National Organization of the Mobile Myeloma Research Foundation and got involved with their advocacy work down in Washington, D.C. Uh, learned that they get to meet with senators and representatives, along with the families and patients of mobile myeloma. Um, so after the first trip down, uh, the, the founder of the MMRF, 
um, wanted me to be the, the head for the Pennsylvania Coalition, which I, you know, definitely accepted. So what I would do every year is we'd go down there and there'd be at least 40 to 40, I guess the most we ever had was 46 states represented by this cancer. And my job was to sit down and it was with the senators. It was never a staffer. It was always the senator. Um, and tell them why we were there, why we were you know, there taking up this time and what our asks were. And then I would turn it over to the panel uh, to tell their story. Uh, the panel meaning the families and the patients and, sure. and the need for more cancer awareness and education and research and all that good stuff. So to make a long story short, Geraldine Ferraro, who was, uh, I believe, the first woman to ever be a vice presidential candidate, uh, she had this cancer. Unfortunately, it, it took her life a few years ago. Um, but, you know, it just I would have never met her. And she was just tremendous. She was a tremendous leader. Uh, Ted Kennedy had a family member uh, had it. So I got to meet him. Um, just a, an endless list of people that I just were in awe of that I was actually in front of them. Uh, Arlen Specter was the last one uh, of the meetings I did for advocacy work. And uh, later on, unfortunately, he did have lymphoma, but overcame that, uh, which is a cousin of what this uh, cancer is. So that, that's one of the, I think, the blessings that was just really cool because you, you really you get to see how Washington works firsthand. I remember the one uh, meeting we had went really well. And then there's a, a lobbyist from, uh, you know, Big Oil sitting out in the waiting room waiting to go talk to the senator for his needs. But anyway, the Geraldine Ferraro uh, Cancer Education Awareness Act was signed, I believe it was 2004 or five. Um, and it's the only bill to this day, and I think going back all the way to 1990, uh, stood by itself. It wasn't connected huh. to any other you know, bills that could have it rejected because it was connected to it. Like we see so often in Congress now, unfortunately, but it, it really was something. And uh, it was announced that it was uh, approved, it was a 100% vote. While we were there, uh, this was announced. And I tell you, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. It was really, I mean, it was uh, like a million times more powerful than the Super Bowl. You know, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So that was that was pretty cool to be part of. You know, the, the other part of the story is um, my oldest son, uh, Ryan now, who um, is 20... 28 and uh found out a couple of months ago i'm going to be a grandfather oh that's awesome john there you and go he was i took him down to the advocacy days because the founder of the mmrf had her daughter there the one year and i thought you know what this would be really cool for him to experience i said you don't have to say anything you're just going to walk around with me in the group we're going to go meeting to meeting each day for the next four days and you're just going to take it all in you don't have to do a thing so we got to Arlen Specter, the last one, and um, everybody was telling their stories. And of course, it's very emotional at times. And even Specter was hit by it. And it just shows that those guys aren't just tough guys. You know, yeah. they're, they're humans just like us. Yeah. So then uh, I remember Mr. Specter, Senator Specter said, Anybody else have anything to say? And up goes Ryan's hand, and I just about dropped. I, I was <laughs> just like, Oh, you, you don't have to say anything. Yeah. And he said, no, I want to I want to say something to him. And it was just like he was 
uh, talking like a person not 10 years old. So he gave his view of what it was like to be a, a kid and not knowing if your dad is going to be around. And that like blew everybody away, um, including Spectre. And then uh, make a long story short, he ended up, it circled like wildfire that this, this kid you know, gave a speech, more or less. And they made him the honorary advocate of the year. Wow. So that was another cool thing. Wow. But that was really the first time I'd ever heard him talk about what it was like for him. Because what I learned really quick is that for the family members, your friends, loved ones, it's harder on them than it is on you, the patient, because it's yes. helpless. There's nothing yes. they can do for you. And there's really nothing you can say to them like, hey, I'm all right. I'll, I'll be OK. Well, they know they researched it. They know what you're up against. They, they know that what you're you're trying to make them feel better. But it's a bunch of, you know, it's a bunch of malarkey, really, when you get to it. But yeah, I couldn't. I, at the time I was diagnosed, I was a chief currency strategist on Wall Street. So given that I had the volumes of chemo that uh, I had endured, there's a thing called chemo brain. Uh, which is a side effect and a very acceptable one when you're still alive. Um, so, you know, memory is tweaked a little bit. You know, sometimes I, you know, can be told something and literally 10 minutes later, I have to be reminded that that was said. Yeah. And it's not all the time, but it, it's enough that um, I'm very much aware of it and I try to like minimize it. Great stuff, John. An amazing story of survival. Let's take a pause here and uh, we'll have a little bit more of the show and then we're going to bring John back and get his pick of the week. The most trusted name in journalism, Klops Clips. All right, Ken, here we go. Police in Gainesville, Florida stopped a car reported stolen a few hours earlier. The car being driven by... A 10-year-old boy and his 11-year-old sister. Oh, jeez. Their mother had reported them missing when she reported the car stolen. Well, the car wasn't stolen and the kids weren't missing. The kids took her car from Northport, Florida, where they live, earlier in the day. They told police they were headed to California because mom took away the girls' electronics for bad behavior. That's what I would do? Yeah. Yeah. Not gonna, I'm not gonna deal with this. I'm taking yeah. the car. I'm leaving. Yep, I'm out. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, so now what do you do? What do you take away now? I don't know. Are you ever concerned your kids are just gonna take the keys and drive away when you tell them they can't use a device? Uh, no, because I tell them if they leave, don't come back. <laughs> <clears throat> take a bag with you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, a Michigan woman, spinning this as a Michigan woman, accidentally dropped her Apple Watch in an outhouse toilet. Oh, boy. And what's the one thing worse that can happen here? Well, she went in after it and got stuck. Oh. <laughs> she, was, <laughs> she was heard yelling for help, and police were called. The toilet was removed. A strap was used to get the woman out. Oh. He said, uh, quote, if you lose an item in an outhouse toilet, do not attempt to venture inside the containment area 
serious injury may occur. Thank you, Captain Obvious. By the way, there is no word as to whether or not the watch was returned to the woman. So I've been going to the Metro parks for like longer walks and stuff like that. And I, yeah. there was one time I had to use obviously the, the facilities and it was an odd house. And I must say that is the last thing I'd ever want. Oh do. my God. I mean, that's like a, it looks like almost like a four foot drop in there. Oh. I'm thinking you're not getting out of there. Nope. Just let it be, man. I, I know that's, you know, you got the Apple watch, you spent some money, but not worth it. Get a, get a, one of them, uh, the, the long hook, the, uh, you know, the, Yes. People that are short for the... Retrievers. Yeah, that thing. How do you think that call went as well when someone called in? Hey, uh, <laughs> I'm here in uh, such and such, and I got someone screaming that they're stuck in the toilet. Can you yeah. come and help? That's... No. Yeah. Nope. I hope she showered several oh. times. Oh, gosh. Well, the iPhone 15 is out, and one man has researched how much money you would have spent if you bought the new version of the iPhone every year. Of course, the first one came out in 2007. Submit B-Hall compared that number with where you'd be if you took that same money and instead of buying an iPhone, you invested in Apple stock each year wow. with the same amount of money. So if you bought the iPhone each year, you'd have spent about 17 grand. Okay? Okay. If you bought Apple stock with that same amount of money... You'd have three hundred sixty-seven million dollars. Wow! How that's about that? crazy? How about wow. that? That's unbelievable. Ugh. That's a good one. That's that's a head shaker. Yeah. And so is this: a high school teacher in Missouri has been placed on leave because of her second job to gain supplemental income. 28-year-old Brianna Coppage joined and performed on the uh, <clears throat> the uh, <clears throat> porn site OnlyFans.com. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, district lawyers are investigating, and Coppage admits she's probably done as a teacher. Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> boy, Captain Obvious is working overtime this week. Uh, Coppage made about forty-two grand a year as an English teacher. And an extra eight to ten grand a month from the site. Eight to ten grand a month. How about that? Well, I obviously I think I know what job she's doing now. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. So no. <laughs> I'm done as a teacher. There you go. I'm not doing the English teaching there. Now I wanna know how did the district find out? What hey I Well, was, that's a good question. I was on uh, OnlyFans. Not that I have a a, a membership, it, I I uh well, a friend of mine told me. That's friend. It. Sure. Right. sure. Yes. Yes. Oh my. Uh, sports. Some scores: eight to three, seven to six, and four to two. I'm Ted Klopp, and that's news to me. Cleveland, this is for you. Cleveland sports history time. We bring in Dr. Dusty Sloan and Dusty. Another interesting one for you with one of your favorite topics to talk about, which is the Cleveland Browns. We move to September 26, 1977. 
This is a coincidence. We're all born around then, so that's always a bonus. The Cleveland Browns play their first overtime game and beat the Patriots 30-27. to What can you tell us about that victory? Well, I had to do a lot of research on it because I was only seven months old at the time. But <laughs> uh, get, looking back at it, you see this box score, and Don Cockroft was a busy guy that night. He kicked three field goals, including one in the fourth, give us a lead before it went to overtime, and then he hit the game-winning field goal, in overtime, but the player that had the best game for the Browns that day, at least offensively, was Greg Pruitt. And people remember the Pruitts, no relation, but they're running backs. This was before Mike Pruitt, but Greg Pruitt that night ran 26 times for 151 yards, caught four passes for 51 yards and a touchdown, and threw a touchdown pass. So he was the big catalyst that night, which helped the Browns win that game. Overtime, Dusty, it's taken a few different um it's changed over the years. Uh, was there anything unique about overtime back in this? Uh, did they just play an extra uh, quarter? Was it sudden death? What'd they do? Well, obviously there were ties back then, a lot more ties. And unfortunately there were ties more prevalent now because the overtime period is 10 minutes, not 15. But back then it was one period. First team to score wins. You didn't have to score a touchdown back then as now you have to score at least six points to win if you're the first one to score, but no, it wasn't anything really unique necessarily about this, except that it was the first and it was also a Monday night game. So you had Howard Cosell, I'm sure on hand to give everyone the proceedings. And uh, it's a, it, let's see what there, it was early in the season it was game two. So it made the Browns two and zero that year for Forrest Gregg. So good start to the season, which the current Browns franchise can't seem to figure out. Well, there's no shots there or anything. You're not trying to say anything. All right. Here's the last question. Who was the quarterback for the Browns in that game? Brian Seip. Brian was the quarterback okay. then. That was, that was the pre-cardiac kids days. And he did all right. It was 18 for 25, a buck 99, two touchdowns, did throw two interceptions. But again, quarterbacking wasn't nearly as quote-unquote easy as it is in 2023. So, But Brian was clearly the starter back then. He had gotten well past Mike Phipps and trying to make him the starter and things like that. So he led him to victory. And uh, like I said, Greg Pruitt threw the first touchdown pass of the game, which I'm sure kind of, and we, and the Browns had to come back from 17, seven down at halftime too. So the place, uh, the place was rocking and uh, got what they wanted at the end of the day. Brian Sipe, my all time favorite Cleveland Brown has nothing to do with the fact that he was the quarterback when I grew up, but that was just a bonus. Uh, or maybe it does. I don't know. Easy name right. to remember, too. I'm sorry? Easy name to remember. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was number 17 in any athletic event I took part in any time it was available. And number one in our hearts. And I didn't really, wasn't really all that much of an athlete, so I wasn't number 17 too often. But anyhow, uh, Dusty, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it, guys. Cleveland! This is for you! Ted, we have some good news. Okay. An estimated 80% of older Americans have high blood pressure. Well, Do we fall into that realm? Is that us? Are we older Americans? I, I think so. I, I, don't, I hope not. Not yet, anyhow. A new study from researchers at Iowa State University shows that adding just 3,000 steps a day to your movement can drop your blood pressure by four to seven points. How about oh, that? How about that? So that 
I've been I've been doing a little bit more steps. So 10,000 steps is usually like somewhere around, I don't know, four or five miles or something like that. So we're talking 3000 steps. You're looking at just over maybe just over a mile. So if you, you walk an extra mile a day, you could drop your, your blood pressure that much by four to seven points. That's great. I've noticed that my blood pressure seems to go up and down based on uh, when my son is playing goalie. I don't know if those two are related, <laughs> but that seems to be. Well, uh, hey, maybe I have a thought for you. When your son's playing goalie, <laughs> start walking. Walk, around the, walk around the rink. <laughs> That'll help. There you go. I like Classic. that. Classic. Well, Ted, we got some good news. Just walks a few more steps and you'll lower that uh, wonderful blood pressure. Miss Speak of the Week now, President Joe Biden. Why does why does this segment always start? With... <laughs> Anyhow, President Joe Biden recently spoke at the Congressional Black Caucuses uh, Foundation's annual legislative conference. During his speech, he honored the recipients of this year's Phoenix Awards that recognize individuals who have made significant contributions to society. One of the recipients was LL Cool J. And two of the great artists of our time representing the groundbreaking legacy of hip hop in America, LLJ Cool J. Uh, by the way, that boy's got, he got man's got biceps bigger than my thighs. I think he's been. <clears throat> LLJ Cool J, Ken. Just an extra vowel. <laughs> now, I mean, I get that, you know, presidents are usually, oh, with the except, with the recent exception of uh, Obama, and I guess Clinton, most, most presidents are in their, what, their 60s or 70s, and... Um, so that, you know, they, odds of them knowing who LL Cool J is are, are low. I, I get that. Yeah. But either he needs to be told to read the darn prompter or his, his handlers need to tell him to not ad lib and, and don't do that nonsense. It's the same story each time. I, I mean, know. I think, I just think he goes rogue on, on what the prompter is because i mean let's be honest no one's going to add an extra consonant i should have said uh, with ll cool j and, and by the way most people know who that is he's been in movies he's done tv shows he's done music and all that so yeah i, I really i, I actually kind of like president biden i'm not going to say political stuff or anything like that we don't talk about that on the show but i kind of like him he seems like a you know approachable person down to earth blah 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 but he just comes off as a buffoon so much. It, it just, I, I've never seen the buffoonery like I have with that. Yeah. So, well, Ted, I want to let you know, we have another misspeak of the week. Oh, good. The, the San Francisco Giants and Arizona Diamondbacks uh, player recently, or played recently, I should yeah. say, and Giants announcer Dwayne Kuyper, who's a former Indian. There you go. Finished his call of an inning and apparently thought he was in a commercial. Well, guess what? He wasn't. Sharply on the ground to Marte, who will make the play and end the inning. We'll continue this conversation when we get back. Evacs are coming up. I gotta pee. I gotta pee. I gotta pee. Oh, well. The old syndrome. At least he didn't swear. No, that's, he didn't yes. Swear. Yep. 
I gotta pee. We all do it. Pee. We all know it. What 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 what's like uh, broadcasting 101 with regard to uh, microphones, Ken? Pretend as though every mic is always open. That's right. That's it. You're near a mic. Assume it's on. Time for another Cleveland history lesson, and our Cleveland historian, John Grabowski, is back with us. And John, I don't know if it's the heart of the city, but uh, uh, maybe the brains of the city. I don't know. Some might say it's not. I don't know. But uh, Cleveland City Hall, right down there on Lakeside, uh, a, an old building, a, a, a an historic building, it's part of the mall complex, if I'm not mistaken. What can you tell us about Cleveland City Hall? Well, it is it is part of what was known as the Cleveland Group Plan, which was a progressive ideal based in large part on the structures that were in the, uh, the Great Exposition in, in, in Chicago in 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition. And so they decided to take what we now call the mall, which was the seediest part of downtown, it was loaded with bars and houses of ill repute. And they basically cleared that out to make a wide open space. And the county courthouse is one of the structures. They're all Bose art structures that were built there. So you have the county courthouse. City Hall was opened in 1916. The public auditorium is there. Um, and up to the north, you've got the oldest structure, which is now the Metzenbaum Courthouse and the Cleveland Public Libraries. They all share that type of architecture. And so they turned this into an open green space. And one of the plans for the green space ultimately was to have a railroad station uh, right at the north end where the tracks are. And um, that was uh, nixed because it was just too busy with freight trains and the Van Swearingen's had a different plan to build Cleveland Union Terminal, but that's for another podcast. We can talk about that. But City Hall is interesting. It's a fantastic structure, that two-story open court when you come in. It houses basically the Cleveland Hall of Fame. There's a, one of the copies of Archibald Willard's painting of the Spirit of 76 that's hung there. Um, it has two basements. It has a basement and a sub-basement. But what fascinates me about it is the first city hall that Cleveland had that the city owned. Mm. First city hall in Cleveland was 1803. It was in a log cabin. And from that time on, the city continued to rent space until 1916 when the city, when the current one was built. There was a plan in the early 1890s to build a city hall on Public Square, mm. the two north quadrants. And there's going to be a, a sort of an arch that would go over Ontario Street. And they actually broke ground for it. But the public was so upset about the loss of public land that they quit. OK, they, they didn't do anything with it. And uh, so, you know, Mark, uh, J. Milton Dyer is the architect of, of the hall. And he's a famous architect. I believe he did the Tavern Club and a number of other things. People can look him up. But uh, it goes to show, I think, you know, you go from a log cabin in 1803 to this magnificent hall in 1916, and that speaks of the rise of Cleveland. And I think I've said this on podcasts before. In 1910, Cleveland was the sixth largest city in the nation. In 1920, it was the fifth largest city in the nation. Wow. So this is Cleveland showing its power, its wealth, 
its belief in inevitable growth, this whole, and the group plan itself is something that was recognized by architects all across the country. And uh, it's, it, it's amazingly, because it, it was a cooperative project in which Tom Johnson, sort of the radical democratic mayor of Cleveland, actually worked hand in glove with people of, of the Republican Party just to get the group plan going. Historical Society has a wonderful set of drawings of original what, uh, configurations for the group plan. You know, things didn't turn out exactly as they were planned, but they came out, yeah. And now, of course, we're talking about that section between the courthouse and city hall, uh, maybe, you know, building a huge bridge over the railroad to get to a whole new lakefront development. Uh, the one thing I'll be honest that upsets me is, is that rise in the landscape over the convention center. So if you're at the south end of the mall, just behind the public library, you used to be able to look out to the lake. You can't mm. see it now because of that green rise. Yeah. And then there's the, the medical innovation building. One, one wonders what's going to happen with that. The Cleveland uh, Board of Education building was part of the group plan. It's not true Beaux Art, but that's now a hotel. <laughs> so all of that, you know, that's that's going to shift. But that green space is wonderful. It came at a cost, though. Uh, when they cleared out all the residents, uh, they didn't give them any place to go. Wow. No new housing. It was basically, you're gone. Wow. And that was the same thing when they cleared out the site for Cleveland Union Terminal. You know, you moved out, you found your own. There wasn't the alternative housing built for you. Uh, so there's a good, one of our students, Daniel Kerr, uh, wrote a book about homelessness in Cleveland, and he talks about these two things. So, you know, there's another side to the mall, but it is one of the things that reminds us where this city stood in the early 20th century. It, That's really wild. It's a marker. And and City Hall is is worth the visit. You know, if you're going there to pay your back taxes, that's fine. If you're going there for a visit just to see somebody, that's even better. Uh, but take a chat, take the time to look around at that really magnificent structure. The mayoral mayoral office is just spectacular. It's decorated with portraits of past mayors. There's a lot of good iconography and artwork in the hall in City Hall. Long, as I said before, a long way from that 1803 meeting, you know, actually for the township trustees, because there was no city at that time in Cleveland, in a, in a log cabin. Yeah. John, that is a beautiful building. I have had the opportunity to be in it a couple different times. To your knowledge, was that design, did they piggyback that off of another building that they saw, or was that just an original design that they came up with? I really don't know. I think it's an original design, but it's built on basic clean you know, classical elements, Beaux-Arts elements of architecture. And it is in a way, it's it's not a clone or a pair, but it it matches the uh, county courthouse. Yes. Yeah. So, so those two are really good anchors of that. And it's interesting because uh, what we know behind the city hall now, which is this, you know, the Brown Stadium and whatever else, that wasn't there. There were just the railroad tracks there. And prior to the group plan, there was a park uh, where the city hall was called Lakeview Park. Now, it wasn't the most healthy place or salubrious place because the trains ran down there. It was a busy railroad track. And this, these were steam engines and smoke. And of course, city hall was built on that park. And, you know, if you remember city hall from the 50s and 60s, it was dirty, it was filthy. One other a major rev 
renovation, $2.9 million renovation of the hall in 1994, wow. cleaning and everything else. So, and, and you'll see this with Cleveland buildings. You know, Cleveland Union Terminal was dark until they cleaned it. And that's basically coal-fired furnaces, pollution, smoke, you name it. Uh, and, and we've really cleaned up our act, and we've cleaned up a lot of our famous buildings to look like they were intended to be, not dark and dingy. Well, Cleveland City Hall, I've had the pleasure to be there uh, as well. Um, it's a fascinating old building. I, it's just... Uh, uh, the more you're there, the more you find new, unique, different things. And uh, anybody who thinks we need a modern city hall doesn't know what they're talking about. Just modernize that one. That one's that one's just fine. That's fine. Yeah, you know, city council chambers are remarkable as well, yes. except they were built for a city council of 33 people, and <laughs> kind of an empty place when they have meetings now. Yeah. <laughs> So that's yes. another that's a signifier of where we were and where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, we appreciate the info on uh, City Hall. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Ted, we're out and about Northeast Ohio supporting local businesses, food, drink, and we've added a new one as well. So hats off, I celebrated my daughter's birthday. She turned 12, big birthday. We actually had barbecue from a place called Loggerheads in Medina, Ohio. Very good, great barbecue. They make their own beer. I would definitely check them out. We actually had a wonderful breakfast at a grocery store, which seems odd. Bueller's, which is in Ashland, Medina. I think they have locations in Worcester. They actually have a restaurant in the... Medina location that my kids and I went to. It was actually really, really good. We went after mass and uh, it was, it was excellent. And then Ted, I've basically had a conversation with myself and the conversation went like this self, self. you're obese. <laughs> you need to lose weight. What is going to motivate you to do that? Yeah. Instead of working out at home, what should you do? Well, maybe I should just go to a gym. So I joined breaking news. Yeah. Planet fitness oh is many it locations a month or something it is ten dollars a month it's yeah. pretty wild i mean they have they charge you like some surcharges throughout the year or anything like that but yeah ten bucks a month i'm uh using a couple different locations the one i'm using a little bit more is the actually the one in medina okay and i i enjoy it it's all brand new equipment i mean for those of us that can't count our reps with some of the machines they count the reps for you. How about that? <laughs> they have a rep counter and then tells you how long in between sets and all this stuff. A lot of different uh, cardiovascular machines, bikes and all that kind of stuff. Very clean. The people are very nice. I'm getting a little concerned. Yeah. I know they make their money off subscriptions. So people buy it. And then obviously you can go as much as you want that month for 10 bucks a month. There's many times I'm like one of six or seven people there. And I've gone at like all different times throughout the day. Early yeah. in the morning, later in the evening, in the afternoon. And it's always like the same amount of people. So I, I, I'm i not complaining, so maybe I shouldn't say this, but use any machine you want at any point in time. I mean, that's usually one of the biggest issues you have going to a gym. It's like there's so many people, you can't get on the machinery you want. 
not not at Planet Fitness. Whatever you want to do. So okay. hats off to them. That's uh, that's what I got going for my out and about. How about you? I want I need some updates here. I know we well, have bald update and have we've taken in any concession stands? We have. Uh, it's soccer, football, and hockey are the three outs that I <clears throat> have been about with. Okay. Um, there's, let's see, where have we been? We have been, uh, well, we had a game at Euclid. Okay. And to be honest, I don't know if their concession stand was open. That'd be, we'd have to have my wife on. Were you at the high school? No, no, no. The ice rink. Oh, the ice rink. Okay. The ice rink. Okay. Um, yeah, we've been to a couple football stadiums. Uh, uh, Walsh football, uh, stadium. Nice facility. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Akron um, Hoban. Akron Very Hoban. nice as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all good. The uh, let's see the soccer team. I don't know. I think they tied last week and I don't know what they did Saturday. I was not in attendance for that one. I was a hockey dad. Okay. Uh, we had an, uh, uh, a win for the fifth grade football team two weeks ago and uh, they were off this week. The sixth grade football team has won two in a row, including okay. posting a, I think it was an eight zip win, or maybe it was 14 to eight. <clears throat> I can't remember, which is awful. Uh, but they beat a team who hadn't lost in two years. Jeez. How about that? Wow. And then. Uh, it's been in the air raid offense. Yeah. Been in the air raid. A, yeah. They, yeah. There was a, there was a, an air show uh, of okay. sorts. And then. Um, this past weekend, they beat, I don't remember who they, I don't remember the team, but they won 32 to six. And my oldest son, actually, they put him in the backfield on the last uh, point after attempt and uh, gave him the football. Awesome. He did not score, but uh, he was excited about it. Good for him. That's so that was good. Uh, hockey, our uh, youngest son, uh, well, that team is uh, struggling. Okay. They have yet to score a goal in two games. Oh, okay. Uh, they've been beaten ten to nothing and six to nothing. Okay. Uh, they've had forty nine and forty eight shots against them. Okay. Well, yeah. obviously well, nothing. Well, we're just we're going to move up. We're just going to we, we we're at the bottom. Uh, we're going to move up. We're going to get. This better. is the preseason. We're, we're yep. still working on it. Yep. The uh, squirt teams. Uh, my son, uh, middle son, they are two and oh, he was the goalie for one game and, uh, played well. He gave up one goal and then he was a skater this past weekend and had two goals in the game. Exciting. Awesome. And then, uh, my oldest son plays on a couple, uh, teams. He's a skater on one and they were, they're one and one and on the other team, where he's a goalie, um, they when he's played, they are one at one zero oh, and one. They mm. won one. They tied a game over the weekend with thirty four seconds to go. Oh wow! Very exciting. Very exciting. So well, it's had long season. Obviously, we're in the preseason. We'll be having these conversations from now, and hopefully, this is sobering for you. Probably until about April. It's uh, March, and it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a full marathon. Yes. And when you say the word skater, I think of Tony Hawk. So I'm thinking of these kids on a skateboard, no. with nice haircuts and jumping around. No, no, no. 
just where I'm at. Oh, yeah, I got you. That's outstanding. Well, Ted, very impressive. Congrats to uh, the youth teams that you're following with your kids. And I, I know, obviously, they're they're playing their best. You've seen some wonderful stadiums. Uh, hats off once again to Planet Fitness, Bueller's, and Loggerheads. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, continue to support your local business and be out and about just like us. All right, we're back with our handicapper, John Ryan, uh, who shared an amazing story with us a little bit ago. Now we're going to turn our attention to what John's doing uh, nowadays, handicapping. And uh, as most of us know, here in Ohio, legalized betting started at the beginning of the year. But I'm going to guess that a lot of folks uh, might be dipping their toe into the water for the first time, might not know exactly how to bet, what's the safest way to bet. Uh, me, for an example, I follow sports, but I, you know, I've never bet on sports. So how do I get started if I don't want to lose my shirt, my house, my bank account, you know, my wife and kids? All right. Well, it might be kind of <laughs> quiet, but the rest of those things, <clears throat> how, how do I do that safely? Well, I mean, you bring up a great point, Ted, right away is that, you know, being uh, open and honest to your spouse about this, because there, I have experienced this time and time again, where uh, it's done uh, kind of privately, especially if the if generally it is a man uh, starts losing and losing, uh, you know, in an accelerated fashion. And then and then that's why I always say bet with your head, not over it. Um, you know, I do it um, with mine and it's fun. Um, just yesterday, I, I was on the uh, Washington uh, Commanders, and uh, it was kind of like, you're going against the Eagles? And yeah, it's fun then, right? You know, but I bet numbers. I don't bet mascots. I don't bet teams. So I really, when I look at the betting lines, there is no emotion. And uh, I've learned this with uh, trading in the pits up in New York City when I was on Wall Street. Um, and that's really where this all began a long time ago. And it was before I was even diagnosed with that cancer story. But it was around 1997, 98. I was in charge of our crude oil operations, uh, heating oil and leaded the, you know, the works. It was a team of 32 traders. Always had a meeting on Friday afternoons. And then after that adjourned, the one trader came up to me, one of our better ones. And he knew that I was building out the first uh, set of uh, price pattern recognition systems and neural nets, uh, which sound like big words, but it really isn't. I mean, the technology has been around, the mathematics has been around sometimes for, you know, 500 years. And we've just been able to, you know, augment it uh, to, you know, current life the way we know it. So anyway, he says to me, John, do you realize we could make a fortune if we did this with sports betting? Obviously, this is before sports betting was even considered ever to be legal. It was it was certainly taboo in most circles. You know, if you were known as a as a uh, bookie or a gambler or something like that, it was always tied to, uh, you know, how many mob movies do we have that have a bookie in it that, you know, is taking huge bets and then the poor guy can't pay. But anyway, I told him flat out, I said, you are out of your mind. There is no way in God's green earth there is any thing that we can do intelligently to make money in sports betting. It's a coin flip. And I, and I, I probably said arrogantly, I don't bet on coin flips, you know, referring to the markets. So um, he eventually got me to the point where I created a small database 
And there was that eureka moment where it was like, oh my goodness gracious, this stuff can work. And it works historically over many, many years. I didn't know anything about the industry. You know, I was like a new, a new sports guy. Um, I researched the industry and uh, they had those Saturday morning shows. And I understand they still have some, but it was literally like, hey, we have inside information that the quarterback's breaking up with his girlfriend and he's going to be playing like crap this week. And we got a whole bunch of other things we know about the locker room. And this is one of those games you can bet everything you own on the game. So I'm sitting there on a Saturday morning thinking, do people actually believe this or is this like a, a comedy like, uh, you know, like the wrestling is? Um, Wait a I, minute. It's legit. I want to bet on wrestling. <laughs> there you go. I think that's a fixed um, sport. I do oh. believe that would be hey, fixed. Don't burst my bubble. <laughs> well, we'll talk about a, a fixed okay. game right, this enough. last night. Fair but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's funny. Uh, so, anyway, uh, I, I realized that the industry was just full of uh, shady characters, put it nicely. And I thought, wow, you know, as a hobby, maybe I can just do this with a little bit of integrity, teach people what betting systems can do and uh, and and just help. You know, it wasn't meant to initially to make money. So I started doing that. And then, of course, we have the diagnosis in December 2000. Wall Street career is over. Um, but while I was at in the transplant in the days that I was capable of doing it, I was doing um, MBA at this point in time. And I had a you know, handful of clients and I, you know, maybe it was the chemo that made me smarter, but I went on this unbelievable run and then it suddenly started getting around. The, in the internet was in its you know, infancy at that point. And uh, through that all of uh, being down at Johns Hopkins, I started building a client base. Um, so that actually really helped, you know, uh, medically and mentally while I was going through those horrible times, because it gave me something to look forward to, gave me a game to watch on the on the TV, and uh, gave me something to think about that wasn't you know related to am I going to die, and it really was a great distraction and a healthy one. Um, so then, after the advocacy days were over, uh, around two two thousand eight two thousand nine, I kept this on the back burner. So I, I had various corporate jobs. Uh, but it was always a hobby. You know, it was still taboo. Uh, nothing was legalized. Then it was around 2016, 17 that I saw the wave starting to happen, that this was going to happen in New Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania. And, and eventually it was going to be all 50 states at that time. So I, I tried to prepare myself to get ahead of the wave, uh, start you know, doing some more uh, shows, learning how to do YouTube and all that good stuff, these podcasts. And, um, you know, here I am today now. Uh, but along the way, I'm just fascinated with anything numerically um, oriented, just like the markets. You know, it, and, and I think one of the things um, we can talk about right now is sentiment. Sentiment is huge and it correlates, to, in my opinion, 100 percent to Wall Street. You know, we have a, a correction going on uh, in the marketplace now and, and prior to that market. There, it really wasn't anybody saying anything bearish, right? It was, uh, you know, we all feel good. There was uh, very little fear of a correction. Uh, Prices are just going to keep going higher. Um, it'll be another six months and Apple will be $4 trillion in market cap. And that's where um, I learned this actually from a, a guy you might have heard of called Warren Buffett. 
And uh, very simply put, he describes the market as you have fear on one side of the seesaw, you have greed on the other. When greed gets at the peak, that's when you have the tops because everybody thinks, you know, they're not worried about it going down. It's just up, up, up and away, and we're going to make a fortune. That's when the tops happen. And on the bottoms, it's the direct opposite where you tell somebody, you know, and I tell Ken, I just bought 100 shares of uh, Tesla. And Ken says, you did what? Are you, are you crazy? That's the worst thing you could have done. But that's generally, and not to say that Ken doesn't know what he's doing. I'm just trying to make an example. Well, so, um, but, you know, those are the that's bottoms. a question, John. I'll leave it at that. That's yeah. definitely a question. I, you know, this is not, this is not rehearsed or scripted, obviously. <laughs> but uh, just last night, uh, Kansas City's playing the Jets. And, uh, you know, it was it was pretty rough day, I think, for the amateur better, um, to say the least. So what does an amateur better do, unfortunately? They're down on the day. They want to win it back. Now, your choice of the nighttime game is Kansas City and the Jets. Given the situation of both teams, who's the amateur going to bet on? The Chiefs. Right, Kansas City. Yep. So they're... And this was a, the highest of the last couple of years. There was 82% of the tickets taken by the sports books that I tracked. There's 12 of them on Kansas City. So it was already irrational exuberance before the betting public really joined the frenzy because the ones trying to win their money back. And of course, nobody in the right mind other than myself would, would have had the Jets. But I only had the Jets because the numbers told me to be on the Jets. Uh, so it was, you know, a, a heck of a game. But look what happened at the end. And nobody can predict this. What happened at the end was Mahomes uh, on third down and goal, I might add. He's got a clear path into the end zone to score the touchdown that puts him up 10 and ends the game. Yep. What does he do? He slides on the three-yard line, ball gets put at the two, and the clock runs out. That was a swing of tens of millions of dollars for individuals and the books. And the books came out on top. It also wrecked a lot of teasers. It also wrecked a lot of money line parlays. And, you know, that, that's where the that's why casinos don't go broke and, and sports books don't go broke. You know, it, it's they're doing it for a reason. You know, they're not giving you handouts, you know, that this is really easy to do because it's extraordinarily hard to do. And I don't think people realize it. Um. But anyway, that was, you know, a, a huge win. But my models would never be able to predict that Mahomes is going to take a knee. Uh, if it did, then we could ask for a prop bet and make a fortune. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, I think that sentiment thing is, is a very big thing for people to follow right away. Um, and then with my live in-game betting, it's, it's like me trading in the crude oil pit. You know, if I, if I like the Jets – or what was the the one over the weekend? Uh, I think I shared it on Twitter. You guys probably saw it. Penn State. Yes. So the line on Penn State in the beginning of the game, 20, basically 26, 27 points. At one point during the first half, uh, Penn State was minus eight and a half, minus nine and a half. And it was so ridiculously priced, in my opinion and my research, that I tweeted it. And I thought this is a just a incredible betting opportunity and i always emphasize opportunity nothing is for sure but then penn state gets their act together and and uh, you know kind of blows northwestern you know out by the end of the final game but uh those are the 
times where you think, oh my God, why am I, why would I ever do that? Because it just doesn't feel right. Penn State doesn't isn't playing well today. It's 10 to 3. Northwestern could upset them. Everything is against you at that point. And uh, you have to get used to doing it uh, because of that contrarian mood. Um, you, you have to do it a few times. Maybe you do it on paper. You know, nobody says you have to bet. You, know, you can test some strategies out yourself uh, before you apply any money to it. But the live in-game, I think, especially in the NBA, which is right around the corner, most volatile scoring sport there is. You get 10-point runs a lot of the times during games, and it usually results in a timeout and commercials giving you plenty of time to bet the other team after a 10-point run. And that works. And that, that's something that we've been doing for a couple of years now. The problem is, unlike the market, you can't place orders ahead of time. You know, if I could do that, which they'll never allow, then I could have my plan of action and put all my betting tickets just like you would do in the market. I want to buy Apple at 175. I want to buy another bunch at 172, another bunch at 168. Same thing in my live in-game betting. And it's all based on specific formulas, volatility quotients, how the game might be played. Um, over the last uh, year, there's been 32 games in which both teams had at least a seven-point lead in the NFL. Wow. So there you go. And Kansas City is the one that has the most games like that. Um, the higher the total, uh, the more the volatility can be expected. So if you have a total in college football of 75 or higher, you can bet it's going to be a pinball machine. Uh, even if it plays under and there's only 60 points, it's, that's a lot. I mean, it, it's up and down the field, like Old Miss and LSU on Saturday night. If you had, didn't see, people listening didn't see that game, you can easily review it on a lot of different sites. And that was one heck of a game. I mean, that was just one of the most exciting games I've ever seen. But um, you can't predict those things, but you can get involved by feeling what the game is going right from the start. You know, if it's um, – you know, if it's a dull day in the marketplace and, and crude prices are not moving around, you can feel that almost in the first hour of the trading day. And in, in football is the same way. If the end of the first quarter, it, it's kind of dull, but the expectations were that it was going to be explosive. There's your opportunity to bet the over. And we did that in the Penn State game, too. That was the second uh, live game tweet. I think it was like 37 and a half points. Yeah. And Penn State scored, what, 42? Yes. So, I mean, it doesn't always work. I don't want to sound overconfident, but there are opportunities where you, you can say, wow, this, this looks good. It's an opportunity. I'm going to take it. Well, John, certainly I've learned a lot just, you know, obviously we're friends first and foremost, but I've learned a lot just following you and watching your videos, which I highly recommend many people do. And we'll talk about that at the end of the show. And I really appreciate you talking about you know, your algorithms, how you came up with them, and, and just the philosophy that you have with betting. Ted and I talked, and our listeners are greatly benefit from your insight and services. Ted and I are proud to announce that with your help, we are going to be providing the John Ryan play of the week during the football season. Each podcast, we will give a play that you recommend to help our listeners win a little bit of money, but also get an idea of how good your handicapping works. The first time we were on, unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties and weren't able to do it. You gave us the Colorado game versus TCU, where we took Colorado plus 23. 
John, that was a winner. And many of my friends decided to jump on that as well. As we look in for the next week, I believe we're in week five now, which is just crazy for the NFL. Is there any games that our listeners should take a look at or what recommendations do you have? What's the play of the week? Well, I, I think <laughs> we need uh, a big the... voice, don't we, Ken? The Maybe. play yeah. of the week. Oh, you'll do that. You're very talented. Uh, we'll get, we'll get big voice Jay on that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going uh, down here. Um, I think, you know, I've been riding the Penn State wagon here uh, pretty heavily this year, and it's all because of the, the research I learned, you know, following Drew Allar, the quarterback, five-star recruit, sophomore, has a cannon of an arm, very accurate arm. He wasn't so accurate the first half of uh, Northwestern, but Penn State is the type of team that when things aren't going quite right, it's almost like the Eagles. You know, if Jalen Hurts is a little bit off, the passing game isn't there, the defense is taking it away, they immediately go back to the run and say, okay, stop this. Because if you do, then we're going to go back to the pass. Yeah. And I think James Franklin's done a, a great job with that, um, you know, with his coordinators recognizing that simple fact. You know, the safeties come up, you can expect play-action pass. And uh, I think you will see Penn State in the – in the future, throw more bombs for touchdowns. And I uh, would like to see that done against Ohio State and Michigan, to be honest, because I do have a a pizza money bet. And when I say pizza money, for those who are listening, it's exactly <laughs> that. Some of you should be betting, you know, slices of pizza if you're brand new at it. You know, it, so what? If you bet $2 and you win, you won $2. Right. And you're learning. Every time you make a bet, win or lose, you, you want to come away with learning something and gaining experience. Um, but – Penn State, I think, is a team, along with Texas, that I put together to be in the championship final. So last I looked with Penn State, they were 16-1 to to win it all. The one I really like better than that is Drew Allar to win the Heisman. Okay, so oh, you're listening, you're thinking, John Ryan doesn't know anything about anything if he thinks this kid's <laughs> going to win the Heisman. Yeah. But this is where you find value, in my opinion. You got you to make these calls before the facts happen. And by doing pizza money, if Penn State loses to Michigan, Ohio State, you're not going to lose sleep over it. You know, if it's $10, $20 max, but you're getting 35 to 1 just in case. Yeah. But I can guarantee you if Penn State keeps playing better and better, which they are week after week, and they knock off Ohio State, who doesn't seem to be like the Ohio State of years past, who has Michigan played? I mean, it, it's literally almost embarrassing schedule. <laughs> um, it really, it, it's unbelievable to me. Um, I, I like mean, you, playing Minnesota this week and they're, I like when you have Michigan game. and, and embarrassing in the same sentence, those words <laughs> for me, they go together. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, on any given Saturday, I can, I can fully agree with that. <laughs> um, definitely. But, um, I think um, if I'm right, Penn State actually has off this week. But I think Drew Allard at 35 to 1 is worth pizza money. Okay. Because if he if they defeat Michigan, Ohio State, and then have a chance to go undefeated, you can bet a, at least a dollar that he's going to be in contention and in the conversation for the Heisman. Especially if one of those guys out west, like Caleb Smith of USC, stumbles in a game, or the, the kid from Oregon stumbles in a game, and Penn State's sitting there undefeated. The, the odds are much better to have 35 to one with a player who's leading the team in that direction than you would get on Penn state itself. Yeah. So well, that's I know super exciting time. for many folks here, John, because 
I don't, I think you know this. Drew Aller is from Medina. That's actually yeah. where my kids go to school. So he's a local guy. So we actually have quite a bit of people from Medina and all that that listen. So you've just made their day. John, you're making people <laughs> happy left and right. Thank you for well, that. Appreciate that. That's good. Um, yeah. You know, how I have a question for you, being local. How in the world did Ohio State let that kid slip through their hands or any of the other Ohio schools? It's a great it's question. He, I, the story that I was told, because I know there's some people that are interviewed, what I was told is that James Franklin from the start started and recruited him. And he was very interested. He's a loyal kid. And they just recruited him throughout. They never stopped recruiting him until he signed the dotted line. And Ohio State didn't really have an interest, didn't really talk to him. They had some other quarterbacks they were looking at. And at the 25th hour, they were trying to get him in in the mix. And he said, no, I'm interested in James Franklin, Penn State. That's how that story went, which is, in all honesty, crazy. Here's yeah. a guy who's like six foot three, six foot four. He's like the, the weight of Ben Roethlisberger, a big guy. He can run. He's got a can of an arm. And I agree. He's just going to get better. But hats off to Penn State. They they recruited him early and they got him. So. Hey, John, yeah. if oh, good. if uh, if folks want to uh, follow you on social media, go to your website. What's where can they find you to uh, get more picks? Uh, you can find me at the predictiveplaybook.com. There's no the. It's www.predictiveplaybook.com. Uh, on Twitter, at John Ryan Sports and the number one. Um, let's see. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and, and um, LinkedIn, but those aren't really the, the main focus. I think if you go to the YouTube channel, Predictive Playbook, you'll get easily all the videos. And plus, there's links on my Twitter feed to those videos, and they're quick-hitting 10-minute segments, you know, giving out a pick with a betting system that you can write down and track yourself and use forever. A lot of these systems are 20 years in length um, and haven't had more than one or two losing seasons. So if you just have the discipline, I know it takes the excitement out of it. You know, my, my gut's telling me to bet Texas or, you know, whatever, your favorite team. This is a discipline uh, way of generating profits. And you may not win every single week, but you have the proof of the pudding and the results behind it that have shown that this system makes money. No guarantee that it's going to make you money this year, but it stands to reason that you have a great probability of making money. So I think that's that's a, a good thing to do. Um, for my bet of the week, real quick, if there's time. Uh, yeah, of I course, Jay, we have plenty of time, yeah. Texas Longhorns this week. Um, I don't know where it's going to grade yet. Uh, my 10 unit plays have done extraordinarily well. They're five and one to start the season. This will be another one. And um, I, I definitely think Texas is going to take care of business here. The line's only five right now. I wouldn't be surprised to see it drop a little bit to four and a half, but below that, I think it's not going to happen. Um, one of my best friends in all the world lives in uh, in Texas, outside of uh, Austin, but he went to Oklahoma. And every year we we have a little gentleman's bet. It's usually, you know, a, a six pack of, of a beer of your choice. Uh, but every year we we do this, and you know, Oklahoma is going to have a bad taste in their mouth. They got, I think, it was what forty nine nothing last year. Yes. Uh, and this is a storied rivalry. This is going to be, you know, blood, sweat, and tears on the football field. Neutral location, the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. Um, it's just it's, a, it's the marquee game of the week. But I do think Texas is just too much right now to 
think that Oklahoma could pull off the upset. John, exciting stuff. Uh, what a pleasure it was to have you on today. Thanks for telling us where we could find you. Thanks for uh, obviously giving us the great information. I actually gave us two bets. I mean, here we go. We got Drew Aller to take him on the Heisman and then obviously take a look at Texas. We'll take a look at that line as we move closer to the game. But right now it's at minus five and a half for his Oklahoma. So that'll be super exciting. But John, before we let you go, and it's one of my favorite things. And when I started watching your videos and all that, it was for me, super exciting to hear this before we let you go on your YouTube or anytime you finish out a video, you close out the show with a great saying, it would be an absolute pleasure for myself and for Ted. If you can close out our interview today with your closing statement. It's real simple, Ken. And thanks a lot for having me on again. Uh, always remember folks that with your head, not over it. And may all the wins be yours. Oh no, not a dad joke. What has more letters than the alphabet? I don't know. The post office. That joke was horrible. We're coming to the end of episode one, two, three. One, two, three, you later. One, two, three, I'm done. I don't know. One, two, episode one, two, three of two middle-aged men in Cleveland. And we had a uh, we had a lot on this show. We really did. And I don't think it was planned that way, but it worked out that way. And it was all really good stuff. Really good stuff. John Grabowski talking about City Hall. What a great building that is. Some great history there. The professor, Rusty Dusty Sloan, talking some Cleveland Browns. That's his favorite topic. Luckily, we're talking about years past in the first overtime game as opposed to what we saw yesterday. Well, that was rough. And then John Ryan. What a story. I mean, it really motivational. You know, you wake up each day and you have an ache and pain. Here's a guy that's, you know, obviously recovering from cancer and kind of basically pushed on in life. And, and now he's doing amazing work with with people with handicapping and all that kind of stuff. So hats off to them. I'm very I'm very glad that he's going to be part of our show from here on out, uh, I think, for quite a while. And uh, he's probably going to help us make some money, too, Ted. I mean, I can't <laughs> wait to place my bet this week on his recommendation of, on the University of Texas as they're taking out Oklahoma. Right now, the line is like minus five and a half, and it'll probably change at the end of the week. So take, uh, once again, when we talk about betting, I bet $25. Don't That's like bet my the big house. Bet. Right, I bet, I bet 25 bucks. That's what I do. There's plenty of sports app. We're not going to promote those. We're just promoting a gentleman who talks about safe betting. So uh, very, very exciting, but uh, really appreciate that. Ted, I got uh, this weekend a very uh, should be a good time for me. Yeah, reconnecting I have never been unconnected, but reconnecting <laughs> with with old friends. Oh, Kevin Strail, who has the nickname the Human L. Yeah, we'll talk about why he's called the Human L. But uh, <laughs> we're going to take in the AU football game, courtesy of our our friend Jason Miller. Who, yeah. congrats to him, he's the new vice president. Of development at Ashton University. Hey. I never knew you know what your friends are going to be doing when they're older. And I, I, when I knew Jason as a freshman in college and we used to spend time together, I was thinking, you know, what's he going to do? And he's had a very successful career. So hats off to him. But Kevin and I will be taking in Ashland football. We're currently three and three. They'll be taking on, and this is a game I think we called them back in our days of Sports Time Ohio. <laughs> They'll be taking on the Walsh Cavaliers. 
How many times during that broadcast will I have slid in the Cavaliers? I think a lot. I'll have to go back to one of the CDs and, and look at that. <laughs> Seven o'clock kick, and then we'll be uh, we'll be bunking up. When's the last time you had to stay with somebody other than your wife in a room? Uh, I can't remember. Can't remember. Yeah, we're going to bunk up there in the old Wingate on uh, 250. Really? Oh, yeah, I think it's they're running out of bed, so I think it's going to be... Uh, a single bed, two men. So oh. we'll see how that goes. So, okay. But yeah, just uh, just enjoy the weekend and it'll be fun. So, and then my son has got a cross country race, big race uh, for the Medina F- Festival. He runs on Saturday, and then I'll be doing <laughs> I'll be doing some volunteering, which will be fun. They uh, obviously to keep costs down, they ask for people to volunteer. I'll be working the finish line shoot for the races from 9 15 to 11 15. So what does that mean? So when these kids run their 3.1 miles and finish the, and get through the finish line, it is my job to make sure I pick them up and move them along. I can't find a better job for myself with that. What are they expecting them to collapse at the finish line or what is that? If you've been to a cross country race and I know some of you listening have, yes, a lot of kids collapse. Okay. We got so a, job is to holler at them to get them up and stand them up and get stand them, up. them up and keep them moving. Okay. Keep them moving. So okay. I'll be doing that. I'll, I'll obviously have some great stories for you in, in two weeks. Can't wait now. to hear but this. I'm excited be, for that. So I, I want to know, can we, might can we put a microphone on you during that? I think we could do something. Yeah. Or a body cam or something. Cause I, I know people are going to be interested in this. So yeah. of all the people, Move it. get out of the way. Coming through here. This is not a rest area. Move along, please. Please keep moving along. I've upgraded because last year I was uh, collecting chips because the kids wear chips on their shoes for timing. So that was my job last year. Hey, let's have your chip. Give me your chip. Undo your shoe. Give me your chip. So now I've gone from chip to moving people along and picking them up. So it's I can only imagine what I'm going to have to do next year. So, yeah, I well, what are you? What what's the next step up? What, are you the track announcer? Or are you starting the, the race? Oh, you have the gun. You yeah. Or what does that guy him. do when it's all? He's got his job takes one second. Yeah, my father's done that for years. Okay. Cross country is the way to go. You shoot, yeah. shoot the gun and go in the car, then you're, you're done. Unless there's a nineteenth hole, right? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so yeah, that's what I got. I. I know that you'll be taking in some sporting events. And so, so yeah, we'll be somewhere at a hockey rink or a football game or a soccer game. God only knows. Do you look at the schedule ahead of time or do you just like the night before say, okay, this is what we got. I'm just doing it. Ken, how, do you, just, how do you deal with that? I know this is uh, an audio only podcast. Yeah. I'm just going to call up. My Outlook calendar. Oh, good. Okay. Me. We could describe this well so the listeners understand. You see all those oh, different colors? Colors? Those are all you, what you're showing me right now. I would envision. I know there's some people I work with where they basically have on their desktop every icon possible that you can't even see your screen. As I look yeah. at your outlook, that's what this looks like to me. It's yep. like I'm looking at like 30 different things right now. Yeah. This is unbelievable. Well, here's the best part. My wife and my youngest son are going for a Cub Scout camp out this weekend. So oh. I have to pull this stuff off by myself this weekend. So we'll see how that goes. Well, get the bags ready. Make sure you got the the right equipment. We can only hope. Get that going. Well, Ted, great show. Pleasure. 
once again, sorry to everybody who was expecting this last week. Life just got on the way, but we'll be back on track here for the next two weeks. And one just la- one last reminder, special thanks to John Grabowski, John Ryan, Dusty Sloan, and of course, listeners. Just remember, we're just two middle-aged men in Cleveland. Two Middle-Aged Men in Cleveland is sponsored by Westminster AV, custom audio-visual packages for all occasions. You don't have any rants? I'm trying to think if I have a rant or not. Not really. I mean, I do have a rant, but I can't do it here. Uh, <laughs>